Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. For today's episode, we are sharing an interview with the New York County Lawyers Association recently conducted with Chief Administrative Judge Lawrence K. Marks. The topic? How to Streamline the New York State Court System. The interview was conducted by Daniel K. Wig, host of the County Lawyers Amicus Curiae podcast. I'd like to thank the county lawyers for sharing this interview with Amici. Amicus Curiae with host Daniel K. Wig, a podcast series from the New York County Lawyers Association. Join us monthly for candid, useful, inspirational, and entertaining conversations with leaders of the bench and bar and those who serve the legal profession. Most court structures are fairly simple. There's a tri-level court, there's an intermediate appellate court, and then there's a court of last resort, typically called the Supreme Court. We see that in the federal system. New York, however, is a little bit different. There are 11 tri-level courts, arguably two ways to appeal decisions from that court, the appellate division, the appellate term, and the court of last resort is called the court of appeals. This may be a loaded question, but I'll ask it anyway. Why was it structured that way? Well, yeah, you'd have to ask somebody uh, from the 17th century that question. <laughs> you know, the last significant restructuring of the New York State court system was in 1962. And that's the structure we have in place. It's really a very difficult question to answer. You know, why we've been subjected to this very complicated Byzantine structure. Uh, <laughs> we're focused not so much on um, why we are where we are today. We're focused more on, on the future and how can we simplify and um, implement a trial court structure. And it's it's particularly the, the trial court structure, not so much the structure of the appellate courts, although the proposal does impact on that to some extent on the appellate courts. But we're focused on uh, the future. Right. And we will talk about the future today. So I'd like to welcome our listeners to Amicus Curie, Nyquist's podcast of casual, comfortable, and friendly conversations with leaders of the bench and bar and those who serve the legal profession. I am very pleased and honored to welcome today the Honorable Lawrence Marks, the Chief Administrative Judge of the State of New York, a position he's had since 2015. Prior to that, Judge Marks was the first Deputy Chief Administrative Judge from 2012 to 2015. He has had a long career in OCA, the Office of Court Administration in New York, and he is a judge of the Court of Claims, and we'll talk about the different trial courts during this conversation. And that is a position he was first appointed to by Governor Patterson in 2009. So Judge Marks, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's talk, and again, it's very complicated and I don't want to take up too much time, but let's talk a little bit about the current structure of uh, the New York State court system. So briefly, there are 11 trial-level courts, and so just sort of summarize on sort of what these courts are and maybe what their jurisdiction is. Sure. And by the way, there are 11 separate and distinct trial courts. That's far more than any other state court system has in the country. And, uh, you know, we're kind of uh, sui generis in that respect. So we have a group of, let's call them superior courts, uh, superior trial courts in the state. One obviously being the Supreme Court, which is the court of general original jurisdiction in the state, uh, by the way, does date back to the 17th century uh, to 1691. And uh, it's called the Supreme Court. Uh, as you pointed out, that's unique as well about our system. Supreme courts are usually not just in the federal system, but in state courts around the country. The Supreme Court is the high court in, in the state. So we have the Supreme Court, 
the surrogates court, which hears trust in estates matters, a uh, highly technical area of the law. We have the court of claims, which you mentioned. I'm a court of claims judge. The court of claims handles monetary claims against the state. And there are about uh, 80 to 85 court of claims judges in the state appointed by the governor. And most of those judges are, I don't want to get into too much detail and confusion about this, but most of the judges don't sit in the court of claims. They sit in as acting Supreme Court justices in the Supreme Court around the state. So that's the court of claims. We have the family court, which uh, hears, um, as I think most people know here, issues relating to the families, you know, family offense matters, uh, child protective matters, custody and visitation, child support, and issues related to families. And we have the county court is the last of the group of superior courts, which exists outside of New York City, not inside New York City. And has some uh, modest civil jurisdiction, but it's primarily the felony level criminal court outside of New York City. So those are the superior courts led by the Supreme Court, which is, the, as I mentioned, the court of general original jurisdiction. Then we have, let's call them lower courts, which have lower civil and criminal jurisdiction. That includes the New York City Civil Court, the New York City Criminal Court, the district courts on Long Island and in, in, uh, Nassau and Suffolk counties. And the city ones, this, I'm sorry, the 61 city courts, which exist around the state outside of New York City, those are the, the lower courts, if you will. And then in addition to that, there are the town and village courts, which also exist exclusively outside of New York City and have lower court criminal and civil jurisdiction in areas of the state outside of New York City that are not within city boundaries. And by the way, the town and village courts, there are probably about 1,800 town and village courts across the state and, you know, an enormous number of town and village courts. Most of the judges who sit in those courts are not judges. They're not, I'm sorry, are not lawyers. They're non-lawyers. And they also are not state funded. Uh, all the other courts I mentioned are state funded. The legislature funds all of those courts through the judiciary budget. And the town and village courts are local funded and the, the judges sit very much part time. And as I noted, are mostly non-lawyers. And the town and village courts are not impacted by uh, the proposal we're, we're going to talk about today. And I can explain why that is, but they're not impacted or covered by the proposal. So that's the trial court structure that exists today in New York. And there is a somewhat of a difference in how appeals from these courts are process. There's something called the appellate term and there's something called the appellate division. Could you maybe briefly address that for our listeners? Yes. Appellate division hears appeals from the Supreme Court, really from the, the, the superior courts, which I mentioned, the Supreme Court, the Court of Claims, the Family Court, and the Surrogates Court and the County Court. The appellate term, which exists in only part of the state, the in the areas of the first and second judicial departments. So that's uh, New York City, Long Island, and the Ninth Judicial District, which is Westchester County, and four other counties directly north of the city. Those areas of the state have an appellate term, and the appellate term hears appeals from the lower courts within that, that part of the state, the New York City Civil Court, New York City Criminal Court, District Courts on Long Island, and, and city courts in the first and second judicial departments. North of the Ninth Judicial District, which is the entire rest of the state, 
the the appeals from the lower courts, which would be city courts and town and village courts, go to um, county court judges. The county court judges are designated as the intermediate appellate court in, in that whole swath of the, the rest of the state. So um, you have an, an appellate division for appeals from the superior courts. You have the appellate term for appeals from the lower court, civil and criminal, but just within the downstate portion of the state. And then you have county court judges who serve as the intermediate appellate court for city courts and town and village courts north of the Ninth Judicial District. And then, of course, we have the Court of Appeals, which is our high court that largely has control over the, the cases that, that it hears, not entirely, but, but largely. So I have to say that I'm very grateful. I don't think the bar exam had any questions about the New York court structure when I took it, and hopefully not anymore. We all would have failed the bar exam had there been questions about this. <laughs> right. So just so we set the stage a little bit, the court structure is set forth in the New York Constitution. Is that correct? Yes. And the process that, um, and we'll get into this, that that we need to follow um, is an amendment to the Constitution in order to enact what it is that you and, and leadership of the court system and the legislature who are supportive of this are looking to do, correct? Correct. Okay, great. So um, what I'd like to now talk about is what the plan is on how to consolidate the courts. I just want to focus on the court structure. We'll separately talk about sort of the judges and staff and how that all gets impacted. So my understanding is you're looking to have sort of two buckets, a Supreme Court and a municipal court. So focus just on the Supreme Court. Again, just for clarity purposes, how is the Supreme Court structured right now? What I mean by that is there are different, and this goes into the the follow-up question, there are different parts, right, depending upon sort of a subject matter. Can you maybe explain that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, there are specialized parts, if you will, uh, court parts within Supreme Court. So, for example, and this is we're talking mainly in the, the larger jurisdictions of the state, the larger counties, and particularly the downstate counties. As many of the counties upstate have one judge or two judges and don't specialize or um, approach their cases in a general fashion. But in a, a county like Manhattan, for example, maybe the busiest, has the most litigation and has a lot of the most complex litigation that we see in the state court system around the state, it has a commercial division to hear larger commercial cases. I, th- I think the amount in controversy has to exceed $500,000. So there's a commercial division that deals with those cases. There are matrimonial parts in larger counties, particularly downstate, that handle, obviously, um, divorce cases. There are some guardianship parts that uh, handle a very specialized uh, area of the law, guardianship cases. And I'm trying to think of other examples the largest category of cases that we see, civil cases that we see in the in the Supreme Court are tort cases, personal injury, which can range from fairly simple cases, slip and fall cases, to fairly complex cases like uh, medical malpractice cases. And they are not handled in uh, specialized courts. Those are, are assigned to judges who don't specialize but handle the, you know, the general run of the uh, mix of the cases. And then, of course, there's um, in New York City, I don't know that I would describe these as special specialized parts, but they're criminal cases, the felony cases that are handled in the Supreme Court in New York City. They're not outside the city, as I, as I noted a moment ago. They're handled by the county courts primarily outside the city, but that's really a separate term of the Supreme Court. 
I wouldn't consider them specialized courts, but because they'll have up to Manhattan, for example, has approximately 25, 30 judges handling felony cases in the criminal term of Supreme Court. There is specialization within the larger Supreme Courts in the state, particularly downstate. So the plan for the Supreme Court is to abolish certain, and you can you know, fill in the blanks what I say here, abolish certain of the superior courts that you mentioned earlier and sort of envelop them within the Supreme Court, maybe share a little bit of, of how the proposal plans to do that. Yes. Yeah, so the four other uh, superior courts in the state, not including Supreme Court, under this proposal would be merged into the Supreme Court. So the surrogates court would be abolished. Those cases would be merged and the judges would be merged into the Supreme Court. The same for the Court of Claims, which, as I noted, here's uh, monetary claims against the state. The Court of Claims would be abolished. The cases and judges would be merged into Supreme Court. Same for family court and outside New York City, um, the, the county court. In addition to those, the other courts, the county court would be merged into Supreme Court. And they would all become parts of the, of the Supreme Court. So, so, so with this new proposal, how is the Supreme Court now, it will be structured with these different parts, correct? Yeah, I would call them divisions. Divisions, okay. That's the term that we use in, in the proposal. In the larger jurisdictions, you know, upstate, again, there are many counties. Most of the counties in the state are of relatively small population and have uh, many have a single judge, maybe two or three judges. And those counties would not be divided up into their, their Supreme Court would not be divided up into divisions. The one or two or three judges in those counties would handle the entire mix of cases. So you would potentially have a judge in wherever the county may be who would hear a commercial case and a surrogates related case and a, and a, and a family case? Correct. Okay. That's right. Yeah. But in the larger jurisdictions, and I guess, you know, we could use Manhattan as an example. It's not the only example, of course, but in Manhattan, a court of that size with the volume of cases that it, that it handles, we would not ignore the reality that individual judges may have particular expertise in, in some of these areas. And we would establish divisions within the Supreme Court in specialized areas and, you know, routinely uh, assign the judges who had expertise and interest in those areas to those divisions. But they would all be Supreme Court justices. The cases would be Supreme Court cases. And we'd be left with a single Supreme Court that would continue to be the court of general original jurisdiction in the state, but it would be handling the whole range of superior court cases that are now handled by you know, a handful of courts. So the second bucket or the second court would be the municipal court. And my understanding is that what you're looking to do here, what the proposal is, is that these, inf- I'll use the word inferior courts, but someone will slap me for saying that, would all be enveloped under there. So tell us a little bit about how this will work. And also, I believe there's a little bit of distinction here because there will be a municipal court, won't be statewide, it'll be, because its nature implies that, by county or, or, or at least by judicial district. So maybe share with us that. I would call them the lower courts, not the inferior okay. courts, because <laughs> uh, I don't want to be slapped either. Okay. <laughs> we could both get into trouble. So the New York City Civil Court and the New York City Criminal Court and the district courts on Long Island and the 61 city courts that we have outside of New York City now would all be merged into um, a single municipal court, which would have the the lower court 
uh, criminal and civil jurisdiction that those courts now enjoy. And there could be opportunity in, in the larger jurisdictions of the state to divide uh, in, in the municipal court in individual counties into divisions um, as well, where, where that, that would make sense. It seems probably more compelling to do that with the superior courts, but probably unlikely that most judges would handle criminal and civil cases in a merged municipal court, but it's, it's possible. It's possible. And of course, now upstate in the city courts uh, north of New York City, and, and there's some city courts on Long Island, in the smaller jurisdictions, judges handle both the civil and the criminal in, in the city courts upstate, as they do in the town and village courts, which again, are not impacted by our proposal. And the housing court, now that is structured a little bit differently right now, and how will that be reimagined under this proposal? Yes, housing court now is a part of the New York City Civil Court, but the judges are really statutory creations. They're not constitutional judges, and actually they're appointed by the chief administrative judge pursuant to a statute set out in the judiciary law. They clearly, in our, our opinion, handle very important cases, uh, very complex cases, uh, mostly eviction cases. And, and there's been a lot of attention on housing court in recent months and over the past two years. So we would, um, reflecting the, the important work that they, and the challenging work that they do and the volume of work that they do, this proposal would make them full municipal court judges. And instead of being appointed by the Office of Court Administration, the, the chief administrative judge, they would be appointed by the mayor. So, but they would be full-fledged constitutional judges and municipal court judges under this plan. And finally, in terms of the structure, and you mentioned this earlier, the, the town courts or the justice courts are not really going to be affected by this proposal. Share with us just a little bit more about what they do and, and maybe the reasoning why they won't be affected. Yeah, so they have full jurisdiction, criminal and civil lower court jurisdiction. So you, you could sort of look at the town and village courts as kind of a combination of New York City civil court and New York City criminal court. The jurisdiction, the, the monetary threshold is, is lower than it is right now in the New York City civil court, for example. But they arraign felony cases. They have full jurisdiction over misdemeanor cases. They handle civil cases and their jurisdiction is the areas within their boundaries that they're all outside of the city courts. And as I said, there are hundreds and hundreds of them throughout the state. They're not state paid courts. In other words, they're not paid out of the, the state budget, the state judiciary budget. They're paid by their localities. They're uh, part-time judges. Most of them are not lawyers. Um, it's a system, frankly, that has uh, tremendous challenges, mainly because most of the judges, two-thirds of the judges, are not are not lawyers, and that presents a lot of challenges for those courts. But they, the fact of the matter is, they're popular in their jurisdictions, and you know each little town and hamlet uh, wants to have its own justice court and elect. I believe they're all elected. There may be some who are appointed, at least on an interim basis. And so they're popular upstate, despite some of the problems and challenges that they experience. And we made a um, a judgment uh, early on that um, although there are issues that should be addressed in the town and village courts, we didn't want to weigh our proposal down by including them in, in our restructuring proposal. So before we talk a little bit about how the judges will be affected by this and, and 
that's, that's another topic. What would you say are the benefits to the litigants and the lawyers for your proposal in terms of the court structure? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, we're now uh, 15 minutes into this conversation and we finally finished, which is probably an incomplete explanation of the structure. It, it's, it is bewildering and confusing and there's, there's nothing like it in any other jurisdiction in the country. So first and for- foremost, it would eliminate the confusion and bewilderment uh, for those that have to navigate the, the current system. And that is not just litigants and unrepresented litigants. And this is certainly a bewildering system for that group of folks. But it's confusing and complicated for, for lawyers as well. So it would be a much simpler, uh, more streamlined, more comprehensible structure for lawyers and litigants who have to navigate it. In addition to which, because of the um, the sort of unique, to a large extent, jurisdiction and authority that these individual courts have, each each one of them, related disputes not infrequently have to be litigated in multiple courts. And, you know, the, the classic example of that is the um, in the domestic relations area where depending on the case and, and the litigants, they may have to be litigating issues arising out of the same family in Supreme Court, family court, and criminal court. And obviously that is uh, expensive and time-consuming and burdensome and completely unnecessary. And we've, we've tried to address that in some of these areas by jumping through hoops and avoiding falling over tripwires by designating kind of one judge to handle multiple issues relating to individual litigants or individual family litigants. But it's a um, kind of a jerry-rigged approach to the problem that we feel could be much better addressed by the merger of, uh, of the courts that I've described. So it would address that problem. And, you know, very importantly, and the chief judge has really emphasized this, you know, as one of the great benefits of the proposal, it would make it much easier for court administrators than it is now, much easier to move resources around. And I'm not talking about taking judges from Plattsburgh, you know, on the Canadian border and assigning them to Brooklyn. I mean, that, that's not going to happen. Certainly, it's not going to happen on an involuntary basis against the wishes of, of the judge who would be reassigned. But Certainly within counties, you know, within individual jurisdictions, this approach, consolidation approach would make it much easier for us to operate like a normal, and we're not, we're not a business certainly, but in many ways running the court system is like running a business. And it can be very difficult to move resources around quickly to where they're most needed at any given point in time. Because each of these courts has its own culture and uh, jurisdiction and, um, you know, an area of practice that makes it very difficult to do that, to be able to quickly and efficiently and effectively put resources where they're most needed. That works. And this is the chief judges also emphasize this. It's a very important point. That problem is probably a greater concern and challenge in courts that have been under-resourced over the years and need more resources, uh, judicial, non-judicial, courts that serve economically disadvantaged communities, communities of color, like family court, housing court, and criminal court. Under this proposal, it would be far easier to assign 
a higher level of resources to courts like that, that uh, historically have not been sufficiently resourced. And before we get on to the judge's question, this is not sort of the first rodeo, so to speak. Attempts have been made in the past. I know the late Chief Judge Kay, former chief judge of the state, tried this. I believe Judge Lipman, former chief judge who held your position once upon a time, also tried this. What are the lessons learned there? Why didn't it work those times? And why do you think and hope that it'll work this time? Every chief judge in the modern era, you know, which I would date back to um, the 1960s when there was the last restructuring of, of the court system, particularly the, the, the trial court structure, every chief judge has tried to do this and um, obviously has not succeeded. So why do we think that can happen now? You know, the last point that I made about, um, you know, the difficulties in, in shifting resources around, particularly to, to the courts that service primarily economically disadvantaged litigants, I think there's been much more attention to that concern in recent years. I'll just mention the, uh, the report of the our equal justice advice, special equal justice advisor, Jay Johnson, who, whom the, um, the chief judge appointed to evaluate how the, the court system deals, institutionally deals with problems of bias and discrimination. And in his report in the fall of 2020, he identified, which was not the first time that that this problem has been identified, but identified and described how there are really two systems of justice in the New York state courts, one for people of means and one for people who are economically disadvantaged. So I think there's particular attention to that problem over the last couple of years. And I think we're hoping that increased attention to that problem will give this proposal the push that it needs to to get over the, the top and finally be approved by the legislature to go on the ballot the end of next year. Also complex, may not necessarily be as complex as the structure, are how judges are elected or appointed. Uh, you as a court of claims judge, as we noted at the beginning, uh, were appointed by the governor. Justices of the New York Supreme Court are elected to 14-year terms. Some judges in New York City on the civil court side, the family court side, are appointed by the mayor. Some judges are addressed as judge. Some are addressed as justice. Uh, So uh, try to remember that for a bar exam question. Um, Tell us a little bit of how that will play out in in terms of abolishing certain courts and enveloping them into this two-structure on the trial level that uh, you are envisioning? Yes. So how judges are selected is a hot button issue, you know, politically and otherwise. Some people think that the elective system works better and produces the best judges. Some people think the appointive system works better, produces the better judges. Some people think a mix of both is the best approach. There's no consensus on that question. And it's a, it's a real hot button issue. So we, similar to the determination we made about the town and village courts, and one could argue, well, if you're, re, you know, this is a kind of once in a generation or one, once in several generation opportunity to, to fix the trial court structure, why wouldn't you fix the town and village courts, the problems that they experience? For the very reason that we were declining to do that in this proposal, it's the same reason why we're adopting what we call merger in place with respect to how judges are selected and, and what their terms are. There's no consensus on that. And in, in our strategic determination that we've made is that better to deal with that issue separately rather than have that drag down um, the primary purpose of 
our proposal, which is to streamline, restructure the, the trial court system. We have adopted merger in place. And just if I can quickly explain what that what that means, what that means is it would leave in, in place how judges are now un, under merger, under trial court consolidation, it would leave in place how judges are selected in the terms that they serve. So for example, judges that are Supreme Court justices are now elected in a judicial district and they serve 14-year terms, that would continue once this took effect. And when the the judge who was in the Supreme Court slot, when his or her term came to an end, that judge would continue to, assuming he or she wanted to remain on the bench, would continue to run for re-election in a judicial district for a 14-year term. When that judge left the bench, the successor would be selected the same way, would run for in the judicial district, run in an election, and, and would serve a 14-year term. That's true for all categories of judgeship. So take family court judges. In New York City, family court judges are appointed by the, the mayor to a 10-year term. Under our proposal, that would not change. Um, what would change is that the family court judge would become a Supreme Court justice, but he or she would be would continue to be appointed by the mayor for a 10-year term. And when the, that judge left office, left the bench, the mayor, the successor would continue to be appointed by the mayor for a 10-year term. Outside New York City, family court judges are elected on a countywide basis uh, for a 10-year term. That would continue under merger in place for the judges in place when the constitutional amendments took effect. And the successors to that judge would continue to run on a countywide basis for a 10-year term. So merger in place would not change the way that the, the judges are now selected would continue that. And ideally, that whole area would be addressed at some point in the future by the legislature, because to, to change that would require further amendments to the Constitution. But again, for strategic reasons and an acknowledgement that there's a lack of consensus in New York about what the, the, the better uh, process is for selecting judges, we've avoided that controversy by continuing the way that judges are selected under this proposal. And keeping on the topic of staff, I mean, you mentioned earlier how some courts maybe are have not been staffed as you would like or staffed to serve the needs of the people. How will this revision affect uh, staffing? To give an example, surrogates court in, say, New York County or Brooklyn, they have their own clerk of the court. If surrogates court moves under Supreme Court, will it still have a structure where there'll be a clerk for the probate part, which I believe is what it becomes, or will there be some other structure envisioned? Well, those are um, details that will require uh, statutory changes and or administrative rule changes. And a lot of the details of this plan would have to be worked out after, you know, if, if we're lucky to get passage by two consecutive legislatures, which is the, and then go on the ballot and get approval by the voters. And that's the process not a simple process, but that's the process for amending the state constitution. A lot of the details will have to be worked out. We have a, a, a five-year phase-in period. There's approval by the voters and the amendments take effect. Well, they would, they would take effect over a five-year period. So a lot of these details could be worked out. That's the example you gave is a good example of one of the details that would need to be worked out. You know, there's approximately 16,000 words in Article 6 of the, the state constitution, which, the, which is the judiciary article. Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution is about 350 words. So <laughs> part, 
and it's not just Article Six, the judiciary article in our in our state's constitution that's complicated. Throughout the state constitution, it reads more like a detailed statute than it does a constitutional provision. So um, details like that will have to be worked out. We will have five years to do that. Some may require statutory action by the legislature. A lot of it will require administrative uh, rulemaking on our part. But there'll be a lot of technical details that will have to be worked out if there's there's passage uh, by, by two consecutive legislatures and approval by the voters when it goes on the ballot. And a final question. And again, you, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Most of these changes and most of what you're looking to do affects the trial level court, but there will be some effect on the appellate divisions. Share with us a little bit, please, on what that effect will be. In two respects. One, the pool of, of judges who would be eligible for appointment to the appellate division is significantly expanded under this proposal. Why? Because these other courts, surrogates court, court of claims, family court, county court, those judges are not now eligible for appointment to the appellate division. Only Supreme Court justices are. But under our proposal, the judges in those courts, those courts would be merged into Supreme Court and the judges in those courts would become Supreme Court justices. And that would make them eligible for appointment to the appellate division. We think that would be good for subject matter diversity for the appellate division. And we think it would be good for racial and uh, ethnic and probably gender diversity as well to expand the, the pool of judges who would be eligible for appointment to the appellate division. Second, the four department structure that has been in existence for over 100 years made sense when it was implemented a, a century plus ago. Each of the four appellate departments that exist to this day, back then, each, each of the four departments had roughly equal population. And here we are a century later, and the second department has roughly, within its geographical boundaries has roughly half the population of the state. And that uh, is greatly impacted, to no surprise, it's, it's the volume of its caseload and uh, created backlogs and so on. So to change that now requires an amendment to the Constitution to create, for example, an additional, like a fifth uh, department of the appellate division. What our proposal does, it would amend the Constitution to give the legislature authority every 10 years to evaluate whether there needs to be a change in the number of appellate departments or a reduction for that matter, which which I think would be very unlikely, but a possibility. It would allow the legislature every 10 years to review whether there's a need to change the number of appellate division departments and then to do that by statute. So it would make it easier to, to adjust the number of appellate departments. And what about the appellate term? How does that get impacted? really isn't impacted at all. It would uh, continue. But again, the pool of judges who would be eligible for appointment to the appellate term, which is now limited to Supreme Court justices, there'd be more Supreme Court justices uh, with the merger of these other courts into the Supreme Court. So there'd be a larger pool of judges to choose from for appointment to the appellate term. Otherwise, it would, it would continue as is. Process-wise, we are recording this in April of 2022. What needs to happen procedurally for this to become a reality? It requires, which I mentioned, but I'll mention it again, it requires passage by two consecutive legislatures. And then it would have to go on the ballot and be approved by the voters, and then would take effect after approval by the voters the following January 1st. Although, as I, as I noted, there's a five-year rollout period in our proposal to deal with a lot of the technical details that would need to be addressed under, under the proposal. So we are 
pushing hard. This is the second year of the current legislative session. All the members of the legislature are up for re-election later this year. So we're pushing hard to get first passage this year. And technically, that means this would have to pass this year because this is an election year. And the primaries uh, this year are in late June. And so the legislature has said that it will be finished wrapping up. It just wrapped up the budget yesterday. And after a break, they'll come back and deal with a lot of uh, remaining policy issues, uh, hopefully including this issue. And um, they will need to do that by early June when they're saying they will be adjourning for the year. So we're making a push, a big push this year. There's 100 plus uh, organizations and growing who support this, legal services organizations, good government groups, victims' rights groups, business organizations, over 100 groups that support it. We're going to activate those groups and get them to push hard in the legislature. And we, the bill has been introduced in both houses uh, by, uh, in each house, the Judiciary Committee chair, which is exactly who you would want to sponsor and introduce this proposal. So we're very optimistic. We're not suggesting because uh, this is not easy at all, and we're not suggesting that it is. And as we discussed, every chief judge going back five, six decades has advocated for something like this. But for the reasons I, I mentioned, we, we're very optimistic and um, we're going to try as hard as we can in the remaining weeks of the session to, to get this on the front burner and get first passage this year. And I would note the New York County Lawyers Association has uh, voiced its support of it and their comment to this is available on their website for anyone who might be interested in reading it. So Judge Marks, thank you very much for spending time with us today to share with us this phrase that you used, this uh, Byzantine structure and, and the plan to, if there is such a phrase, un-Byzantine it moving forward. So thank you, Judge, for your time and thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Amicus Curie. I am Dan Wig, your host. Please stay tuned for our next episode. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to NYCLA Amicus Curiae Candidly Speaking with host Daniel K. Wig, a podcast from the New York County Lawyers Association. New and previous episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Android, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, rate, and leave a review on your listening platform. To find out more or to join our incredible inclusive legal community, please visit NYCLA.org. We hope you'll join us on the next monthly installment of NYCLA Amicus Curiae Candidly Speaking. Be sure to follow our Twitter feed at AmicusNYCLA for information on upcoming episodes.